We got to hear Daniel chapter 3 read to us earlier, but I encourage you to turn back there. Don't remember the page that Annette let us know it was on your Bibles. It's between Ezekiel and Hosea. Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants. There is no other God who can deliver in this way. And what way is that? Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this morning God has gathered us to tell us the way that he delivers his people. And his way of deliverance has been finally revealed to us in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father to salvation, to redemption, to eternal glory, except through him. He will be our way through the fire. So let us be with him in it. And, that, and that's kind of the whole sermon right there, if you just wanted to like, take in. Um, uh, but, but I do have more to say, so don't totally tune out on me there. But So let us, let us pray. Truly you, O God, are God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you have revealed yourself in Jesus Christ by the power of your Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to us as we sang. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. So we are preaching through the book of Daniel in a series to be reminded of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty over all things, especially in this time of seeming uncertainty and obvious unrest. We must be reminded, we must rehearse the surety of God's sovereignty. And I know some of you are getting a double dose of this in Teen CBS, so good for you. That's plenty. And speaking of teens, you know, some of you have to write papers. I mean, some adults may still have to write papers, but I know you have to write papers. And I wonder if you ever got a comment like this. You're just saying the same thing over and over again. I have definitely gotten this comment before, okay? Often that was critical, right? You, I'm, with every new paragraph, I'm not making any substantial addition, right? But, but good writing particularly one that wants to make a point, does repeat itself. It just, with every new iteration, adds some new contour, some new substance to make the overarching point, right? And the book of Daniel is that way. Especially these beginning chapters that are going through the histories. The foundational points and emphasis of this story in Daniel chapter 3 are not different than the previous or successive chapters. The main point is the same. The God of Israel alone is sovereign. He alone is sovereign over all things that are happening, even the things that seem to lend toward the destruction of God's people. 
the story of Nebuchadnezzar, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of their God, is expressing the same thing afresh. God is sovereign in this situation. That said, the story matters, right? The different story matters. God, the author of history, teaches lessons through history. It's how he writes it. As the Apostle Paul put in reference for us, now these things took place as an example for us that we might learn from them. In order to learn from a God-ordained, God-given story, we must find ourselves in it, right? Or better yet, we must be found by it. So how are we to be storied by this story here? How are we to apprehend God's deliverance? Well, as I said up front, and as every good Sunday school student would know, the answer is, that's right, you could say it louder, is Jesus, right? Jesus first delivers us into this story. He delivers us into this story. We cannot learn from, trust in, or hope for God's deliverance unless we are his people. Amen? Yes. Jesus takes us from an alienated people and makes us his people. And it's his people who he delivers in this story. He delivers us in to apprehend this. Right? Second, Jesus delivers us into the fire. God's people follow God. Amen? Well, Jesus Christ went into the flames. He does not stand afar back, but is entering the fiery world of our exile and our trials to be with us as our God and we as his people. It is through the flames that he delivers us. Jesus delivers us into the fire. And then in conclusion, Jesus delivers us into his glory. See, it's through those flames, Jesus was not destroyed by temptation or persecution or oppression. And if you're with him, neither will you be. In fact, he was perfected by it. And so will you be. Such is the sovereign grace of God that we might actually rejoice in the fire of our obedience because we know purified by it, we will be glorified with him. Is that not our hope? Amen. So that's what I want to talk about. Jesus, the way of our deliverance into this story first and into the fire. And then we'll conclude these into our glory. You know, I try to write these things without going into the alliterative points, but it just happens. It just, we're just formed to do it. A quick answer, perhaps, to an initial question. Why am I preaching to you about Jesus from this story when it makes neither any explicit reference, explicit reference to him or makes any actually direct messianic claims? It's a fair question. Well, one, I'd hope that any sermon that I preach to you or anyone preaches to you is about Jesus. Okay. Second, Two, though, we cannot read or understand Scripture without putting on the lenses of Jesus Christ. Like sunglasses, night vision goggles, a microscope, and a telescope all at once, we cannot see correctly or walk accordingly 
without Jesus on. Otherwise, we are blind to understand. And furthermore, this gets us into our first point, right? This passage is not for us unless it is through Jesus. As the author of Hebrews writes, when he speaks of the faithful, them through faith who stopped the mouths of lions, we'll get to that story later, who quenched the power of fire, that's this one, escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness. See the reference to Daniel? He goes on, all these though commended by faith did not receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Did you hear that? These boys and theirs deliverance, God says, did not receive ultimately what was promised. That is for us. That is Jesus Christ. He is the better thing that was promised. He is the deliverer now truly seen. Without him, we have zero vantage into this story, and with him, we can enter into it. So let's enter into it, okay? Jesus delivers you into this story. To make a point, many of us are familiar with the overarching story of American history, right? You would have, many of you would have learned this, right? There's the centuries of native tribes, the initial centuries of European settlers, African slaves, various people coming in, a fight for and winning of independence, a continual growth of the country, a fall into civil war, a reunification and emancipation, a continual growth, world wars, and depression, into a time of prosperity, even under the guise of the Cold War, where we invented cap uh, or promoted capitalism and democracy against our enemies, to now have the posture of freedom. And now we have COVID. It's part of that story. Yes. You know the story in one way or another, right? You could tell it in one way or another. So let me ask you a question. How do you find yourself in that story? Or in other words, does your identity matter of how you relate to that story? And I know in our contemporary politics and culture, we have a lot of uh, woes about this question, if I could put it. And if I can leave some of those contemporary issues aside, I think we can answer an obvious answer of yes. Of course it matters who you identify with in relation to that story. Descendants of those Native American tribes may hear manifest destiny different than homesteaders. Right? Descendants of recent immigrants who came here willingly may hear that story differently than descendants of those who came here in chains. Descendants of Alabama farm boys may hear that story differently than descendants of Midwest farm boys. Is it the Civil War or the war against the states? You see my point, right? We're not talking about the truth and the facts or the causal connections between that history, but how one hears it, how one fits into that story matters who you connect to. So what's the point for Daniel chapter 3? It's this. Who, who do you connect to? 
many of us, if we grew up in church, right, or you become Christians, you sort of naturally gravitate to identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, the faithful people of God. But how is it that you can identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? To make a point that Scripture makes very obvious, but maybe we tend to forget, as I look out in the crowd, most of us, I think, are Gentiles. In the scriptural imagination of the time, there are two kinds of people. There are the Jews, who are God's people, and there's everyone else. The Gentiles, or as they say, the peoples, the nations, the languages. Really, I am struck, if I was to look at naturally, it's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who I would identify with in this story. Ethnically, historically, spiritually, who I ought to identify with this story is rather the specificless, nameless, purposeless, and hopeless pagan masses of Babylonians. All the peoples, nations, and languages who fall down and worship at the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I mean, what does Scripture say? In Ephesians 2, Y'all were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now everyone, right, as Paul goes on to explain, even, even the Jews and their disobedience fell into this place. But the Gentiles are more specific. He continues, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the, circumcision, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow. Did you hear the robotic repetition of this passage? The slavery of this passage? Of how they just fell down. Their passions of pleasure and fear were used against them. And do we not know that ourselves? Right? Pleasure at the sound of the music, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, right? It's a party. It's a party, y'all. Don't you want to participate? Join in, buy it up, drink up, hook up, smoke up, just go with it. Pleasure at the sound of the music, fear at the sound of the king. Just do it or die. Threatening obedience at the edge of a sword, at the mouth of a furnace, at the closing of your bank account, of the ruining of your reputation, at the post of an Instagram account. Hmm? Tyrants without, tyrants within. Tell us, if you just obey, 
you'll be fine. That is our natural disposition in this world. Slaves. But God, but God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ, that he might show us the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us. But now, in Christ Jesus, y'all who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh, making in one man instead of two. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. Amen? See, God himself came to rescue in this way. He came into our flesh, incarnate in Jesus, the son, in Nazareth, to be with his people, to save his people, Israel, but what's more, to be a light to the Gentiles and make them a way into his household. He bore our sins. He became man. He entered into our suffering and died our death, partaking of the same things. Why? As the author of Hebrews puts it, that through death, he might destroy the one who had the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God, in atoning love of Jesus Christ, has come to us when we were fallen down on our faces before the idols of man and the world and our own hearts, to whom desire for pleasure and fear had enslaved us. And he saw us, and he touched us with his gentleness. He called us by name. He lifted us up. He told us to look into his eyes. He freed us from that slavery and told us to follow him. That's the way that we enter this story. He is the way that you come to identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego instead of the nameless mass of idol worshipers. You were delivered into that identity. You were delivered by Jesus Christ to be the people of God. Hallelujah. I just want to make a point before moving on to the next one that some of you may not resonate with that kind of deliverance. You may have grown up and hear testimonies of kind of the radical change of life that you may hear, you know, out of college or out of college, right? Where someone leaves the world of debauchery and comes in. But some of you grow up in the church and you may understand idolatry, you may understand debauchery, you may have dabbled, but you don't feel like you've ever been an idol worshiper. And I get that. But don't doubt your deliverer. Some of it is to see our lives as he frames it. 
but don't doubt what he says. Rather, we remember that this is by faith. We appropriate this truth. We believe it. We take it in. We take hold of it. We grow in this deliverance of God by believing in his work and it working itself out in us in obedient love. We don't believe it so that it may be so. It is so, so we believe it. We have to be storied by it. So Jesus delivers us into this story. So what now? (laughs) But Jesus delivers us now in this story into the fire. I'm a fan of uh, Agatha Christie novels and and the BBC productions of them. If any of you have ever seen these, um, particularly ones that star David Suchet as Hercule Poirot. Has Has anyone ever seen these? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, I see, I see some nods. They're great, okay? So a common, a common recurrent plot is like, you know, the detective arrives or receives an invitation, sort of this mysterious invitation from someone he doesn't really know to go to this country manor estate. And he's showing up, and all these other people are also showing up. And there's a range of kind of expectation as why there. Some people are like, you know, related to the family, and they're really glad to be there. Some, like, hate it, and they've been gone for decades, right? And some people are like, I have no idea who this is. I'm just, like, here. I got this invitation in the mail, right? And they're all there, and, and they come into the manor, and they're told of the immense fortune of the landlord, right? And he actually tells them that they're all going to be heirs of this fortune. They're all going to be heirs of the fortune. But he also knows their secrets. And he's brought them there to reveal those things before they receive the inheritance. And then lo and behold, he's murdered. And now all these presumptive heirs are now presumptive suspects trapped in the house by the police wondering who in the world did this murder. And you can picture some of the people there as they're on the stand in the trial wondering how in the world did I get myself into this? Why did I receive this invitation? Brothers and sisters, yes, what have we gotten ourselves into? Why have we received this invitation? Would it not have been better to stay in Egypt with the meat pots or stay in the pleasure parties with the idol? But we've been delivered up into it. We've gotten ourselves into exile, into the fire, into the trial. See, now as idolaters saved and redeemed, we are no longer aliens and strangers to God, but we are therefore strangers and aliens to our own homeland, to our own native people, to our own nature. You have gone from accusers to the accused who pay no respect and attention to Nebuchadnezzar. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image whom you have set up. And that makes Nebuchadnezzar very angry. We have become one of the faithful people. Exiled into our own homeland, not because we are under judgment, but because the homeland is. Because we have been delivered. 
The Apostle Peter makes this clear. He addresses the saints in his letter as elect exiles. And he goes on to exhort them. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We no longer fit in here. We have been bought and are being prepared by the Lord Jesus for another home. Do you realize that? Do you practice that? Do you let that be your story? While the exiles are told by the prophet Jeremiah to go and rejoice the city into which they are being sent and to work faithfully and prosper it, it is still not Jerusalem. It is Babylon. We live in Babylon. For whatever good, and this is difficult for us sometimes to wrap our minds around, right? I know this for me. For whatever good even our country, the United States, provides for us, it is not Israel. It is Babylon. Those are the only options. We live in exile here in Babylon. There is nothing to reclaim. There is no golden age for us to return to. There is no culture war for us to fight. This is Babylon. Our war is not for the culture but to be faithful to the kingdom of God being broken into it. And it is not of this world. We are homeless here. But Jesus said, I go before you to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. He goes to prepare a home for us. But notice the way that he calls us there. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever would lose his life for my sake will gain it. And the way that Jesus goes is to the cross. To the cross, to sacrifice, to self-denial, to temptation, to betrayal, to suffering, torture, persecution, murder, death. He did it willingly. No one took his life from him, but he did it for us. He did it for us so that we can too. And we must be careful here. Our Reformed doctrine may set off some alarm bells for us, and they're, they're rightly so. I'm not claiming that Christ's unique, sacrificial, 
offering up of himself on the cross is not sufficient for our salvation. It most certainly is. Amen. Or that we must atone in some other way through our suffering. Christ's suffering alone redeems us out of sin and guilt. But Christ does not redeem us from suffering. He redeems our suffering. He does not redeem us from suffering. He redeems your suffering. Some suffering is common to humankind, right? Our bodies age and hurt, our bones break, our hearts break, our looks and our hopes fade, our memories fail, our loved ones' memories fail, our neighbors ignore us or despise us, our friends forget us or betray us, our loved ones betray us, our houses don't work, Our plans don't work. Our schedules don't work. We lose jobs and money and security and spouses and parents and children. Desire and hope fade. We get beaten up and broken down and burned out and taken in. We suffer. Our neighbors suffer. And that has nothing to say about actual state persecutions here and around the world where tyrants and the self-righteous oppress and beat and over-police and over-imprison, over-scrutinize, harass. We know this. And it is all absolutely meaningless unless there is a sovereign God in heaven who works good for those who love him. And there is. There is, but what's more, he is with us. He is Emmanuel. While these common sufferings do not come because we are Christians, because we are with Christ, it does change how we suffer them. It makes us unique in our sufferings. Our trust in God may indeed make some of these more bearable. But I submit to you that our obedience to God also turns these common sufferings into greater trials and opens us up to greater fire. How so? See, when we suffer through common things, and give ourselves up to the passions of the world, we obey idols. Sex, money, power, worship through grumbling and gossip, worry and woe, buying and consuming, our anger, our fear, our shame. As long as we obey those idols, we're told we can suffer fine. But God calls us to obedience, out of the slavery of those things and into the fire with him. The same obedience seen in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The same ultimate obedience manifest in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who in the apostles' words, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to death, even death on a cross. 
But again, the idols of Nebuchadnezzar don't like that. Church tradition has long seen Nebuchadnezzar after the apocalyptic writings of Revelation as a tripartite tyranny of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these three conspire against us, threatening us back into the same slavery from which Christ delivered us, telling us to obey our passions or die. But the same grace with which we were delivered in the first place, we can now say in it, as we face the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have no need to answer you on this matter. Our God, whom we serve, he is able to deliver us out of the fire, and he will. But if not, let it be known to you, we will not worship your gods or bow down before your idols. And when you deny yourself, as Jesus said, when you deny the pressures of the world that are around you, when you deny the pressures of the world that even made their way into the church, unrighteousness manifesting itself as righteousness, the devil as an angel of light, when you deny these things out of obedience to God's word, what will happen to you? you will be bound and thrown into the fire. And the fire will be heated seven times more than usual because of your obedience. You burn with temptation to vengeance because you've been hurt or your loved ones have been hurt. How much more when you forgive, will those flames be heated? You burn with temptation to lust. How much more are those flames heated when you deny yourself and enter into confession and forgiveness? You burn with scorn toward your neighbors or your rulers or those in authority. How much more will those flames be heated when you actually submit to them in love and pray for their peace? You're pressure cooked with greed and gluttony. How much more when you seek out the needy and provide from your own means? You smolder with worry and anxiety. How much more when you rehearse hope will the Flames be unbearable. They carry us through. But if you've tried to deny yourself in these things, if you've tried to obey against your nature, you know that it gets heated. I know that anyway. But this is how we suffer with Christ. This is how we suffer with Christ before there's any king from on high who comes out of Washington or something and tries to tell you to do something. Every day, the devil and the sin is at work in you. Don't think that we can stand that, that fire if we can't stand the own in our own hearts. 
but this is how we suffer with Christ. As Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, so that as you live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for the time is past and suffices for what the Gentiles do, living in immorality. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not want to join them and they malign you. Well, Christ was maligned. Christ was maligned and we're called to be with him. And how much more did he suffer who was sinless? He had no worries or distractions to dampen. But he took it on and so much more can he sympathize with us in our weakness. Whatever we're going through, whatever whatsoever you're going through. So obedience to God stokes the furious rage of this world, our own hearts, and throw us bound into the furnace. But did you see? It's in the midst of the fire. In the midst of the fire, that is where Christ is. Didn't you hear it? He was there by an angel in their fire. One like a son of the gods. How much more is he present with you by his Holy Spirit in your fire? He is there in the midst of the flames saying, take up your cross and follow me. It's there in the midst of the flames. I don't know how you picture God when we sung those words from Isaiah whether he's far off in the heavens or on the other side of the Jordan. But I want you to sing it again and hear it as one who is in the flames. When you pass through the fire, I will be with you. He holds out his hands from them. And the flames will not consume you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Christ is in the fire of our suffering to redeem it. And that's our conclusion. See, Jesus delivers us into the story, and into the fire, but not to make us stay there, but to make a way from there into glory. Kids, I'm finally going to answer a question that's on your kids' bulletin. That thing was probably the first one. You've been listening very attentively during this whole sermon for it, right? Are you ready? How is metal tried? You all have your kids' bulletins? You're paying attention? Good. Trying metal is what makes it beautiful and strong by burning away all the imperfections in shaping it over and over and over again. And do you know that where one does that? You do it in a furnace, in a fire, where it can be heated many, 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 many more times than any campfire you've built. The fire is heated so that the metal glows red hot. The imperfections 
rise and the dross is burned away. And when you take it out, all the things that are not supposed to be there are gone. And you shape it and you're left with a perfect, beautiful, strong, shining piece of metal. One that the smith has worked over and is delighted to see. Scripture says that because of Christ's redemption, we are actually called to rejoice in our sufferings. That the fires of this life, whether metaphorical, psychosomatic, literal, are means of our deliverance into glory. The apostles tell us, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For when you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I don't know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego felt like as they went into those flames. I don't know if they wanted to say anything else. They wanted to curse Nebuchadnezzar. They had ideas of how they could have gotten out of this. I don't know if they wanted to tell him off or complain or cry or whatever, but we're not told any of that. The only thing we're told that they say is like, let it be known that we will not serve you or your gods and we will not fall down to your images. They had hope. Brothers and sisters, let us be like them. Let us not waste our time complaining about rulers and rules and decrees and persecutions perceived or actual as if they were unusual or unwelcome. Let us not pretend that as if we were in some earthly kingdom, if it just changed, these things wouldn't happen. If they don't seem like they're happening, perhaps we are being deceived. And perhaps we have our faces down to the ground, worshiping an idol. Let us not hide our temptations and sins of the flesh as if we expected not to be harassed by them. Let us confess our weaknesses to one another. Let us, as the apostle exhorts, not be surprised as the fiery trial, surely a reference to Daniel, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Share in his sufferings. Share in his glory. And I'll end with this. We heard this exclamation from King Nebuchadnezzar at the end. As you keep reading this, you'll know that he's not very true to his um, exclamations about the goodness of God. He has a tendency to go back and, you know, make more idols. Uh, But he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is no other God who is able to deliver out of this way. Well, brothers and sisters, our hope is this. Peter, 
who knew what it was to be called to suffer for Christ. He wrote this to his elect exiles. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power through faith, ready for a salvation to be revealed on the last day. In this you rejoice, even if for now you must suffer various trials so that your faith, being tested more precious than gold that perishes though is put in the fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory in honor of our Lord Jesus Christ at his revelation. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's our hope. Follow Jesus. Let us pray. Lord God, you're a God of deliverance. Deliver us from every blindness as you have delivered us into your story, into your life, into your household. So deliver us through the flames, O Lord. Make us obedient to you in everything that we might hope in you. And we await that day when you will reveal it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.